0: My name is Jack. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and as Jenny said, we're beginning Advent today. Uh, our theme this year is hope breaks through. We're using Romans chapter 8, that passage that we read, very first passage we read, to kind of look um, at this concept of hope. And it's kind of a weird passage to use for Advent. If you know much about it, it's really about the cross, but um, we're living between the cross, resurrection, birth, death of Jesus, and so it's kind of an interesting way to sort of look at his birth and the narrative around his birth. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll just dive into God's word together. God, thanks for Your word, and uh, in this season, as we as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, uh, Your word made flesh, that He took on flesh and came to live amongst us. Um, so God, would You? Uh, it's a it's a familiar word message to us, many of us who've been walking with Him for years and have been in the church. Um, so would You open it up? freshly to us this morning and the next weeks uh, as we look at this theme of hope. Would you break through into our lives personally, into our church, into this city, with your vision of hope, with your presence of hope, with the real tangible experience of hope in our lives? Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so recently I stumbled across an article in the Atlantic Monthly, which I, I get in the mailbox, and uh, it's by this woman named Jessica Leahy. She's an high school English teacher in Vermont. And uh, she has this best-selling book called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Their, let their Kids Go So They Can Succeed. Um, I haven't read the book yet, though it's on my Amazon list now. And, but she has, this article, she, tikes, she talks about a time where in her high school classroom she gave her, her students, she read to her students Emily Dickinson's famous poem, Hope is a Thing with Feathers, as a way to set up a writing assignment. She's an English teacher. Here's the, here's the poem if you're not familiar with it. Hope is a thing with feathers, that perches in the soul, and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm, that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land, and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. After hearing Dixon's poem um, and her description of hope, then Leahy asked her students to uh, create their own vision of hope using metaphors. So it was an exercise in, in metaphors. And I wonder, how would you describe hope if you were given that assignment? How would you describe it? Just think about that. And here's what Leahy says about her motivation behind that. It wasn't just about metaphors. Here's a quote from the article. My motive went beyond a lesson in grammar and punctuation Punctuation to more pressing goal, to invite hope back into our classroom the particular group of students uh, this particular group of students had endured their fair share of adverse childhood experiences many as she writes in her article had come from single parent homes tough inner city neighborhoods environments where addiction and abuse were the norm of their lives so she says if they could bring hope to life on paper and, it, and listen this, she, I don't think she's a Christian but in sign of some tangible form they might just resurrect it from the dead in their lives as well isn't that cool So it's an interesting hypothesis to resurrect hope from the dead in your own life. How would you describe hope if you were given that assignment? Now, in her article, if you read it, she talks about the work of one of her colleagues, Valerie Mahomes. I don't think I'm getting her name right. But she's the chief of the Pediatric Trauma and Critical illness Branch of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Development. Whew! That's like in Baltimore, I think. So uh, she stresses... This is Malholms, that there's no important, more important predictor of success, human success, than hope. That the most important predictor of success is actually hope. So Malholms has done a lot of research on this. She describes hope as the ability, here's her definition, to envision a more positive future even when all evidence points to the contrary. She works with children who've been abused, children who come from single-parent homes, children in inner-city environments, just like Leahy. And here's what she says. This is a quote from Malholms. Hope begets resilience because it's a magical force that enables us to adapt and heal emotionally from adverse experiences. So according to her, people, and in, in particularly children who she works with, are able to adapt and overcome negative experiences. And they, when they do this, when they are able to adapt and overcome, them, they have a higher sense of self-efficacy, uh, which then feeds their sense of competency and their control of their environment and their outcome, their destiny, as she says. And so the reason this is important, Leahy, Malhams, all this stuff, is that hope is something the gospel produces. The gospel produces hope. It, it is as well as sh- it shapes the way we relate to our city and our world. As Roman 8 declares, we were saved by hope. That's a pretty powerful statement. I thought we were saved by Jesus. <laughs> Romans 8, we were saved by hope. And, and see, the season of Advent, as we look into it, is about the birth of hope... Into the darkness of the world, not just in the first century, but in the 21st. And Leahy says it's about resurrecting hope into our lives. Every year, we come back to it every year because sometimes we just feel like the world has gone dark and we need a little light to bring back the light of Christ. So that's Advent. Um, And so, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at this concept of hope and how it can enable us to adapt, heal, persevere, overcome. And, and today is going to be kind of more basic in, in that sense. We're going to, it's going to kind of be a foundational, maybe 30,000, that's the opposite of foundation, but 30,000-foot view of hope. And then we'll look at a couple different aspects of hope over the next two weeks, and then we'll be at Christmas Eve. So there's four Sundays in Advent, Christmas Eve is one of those this year. So this, we'll look at it for each week. And uh, today we're just going to look at two particular aspects of hope, okay? The content of our hope, and then how to activate hope into our lives, okay? Content of hope and then how to activate, how to begin to activate that, I should say, because we'll, we'll continue to learn how to activate it over the next several weeks. Okay. So first, the content of our hope, and we're going to kind of be in Romans 8 primarily, and I'll look at Isaiah 42 as we read it um, a little bit. Okay. So the biblical concept of hope, as you look at it, it's, you know, Leahy has a good definition of it, Malholms has a good definition of it, but our English word for hope, or actually just the English word hope in and of itself, is really anemic. It's really poorly served. Uh, the biblical concept of hope is poorly served by the English word. The Greek word comes up 80 times in the Greek New Testament, okay? Uh, it's a really important word. It's always translate, translated hope when you see it. But frankly, it's just this inadequate, our word is just inadequate. We just think, you know, it's kind of wishful thinking. Like, we say, hey, if someone says, you know, do you, you know that's true? And you you're not sure about it, you're doubting, and you say, I really hope that's true, right? For example, I hope the Seahawks get back to the Super Bowl. They're going to play the Philadelphia Eagles today. We'll see. I hope that we get some sunny days in the winter. Well, we got one, I hope, for that earlier this week, and especially last night. I hope that that tumor is benign. I hope that we can get pregnant. I hope that I get the raise, right? It's it's, It's wishful thinking. I hope in something only, this is in English, when I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about the outcome. And in that way, hope is a wish. It's a dream. It's, um, it's un- I'm uncertain about it. It's based in chance. Okay? Are you with me? And, and, and listen, though there's a critical dimension of uncertainty in the biblical concept of hope, I mean, this is Romans 8, 24 and 25. It's a great example. It's unseen. It's ungrasped. We'd be wise, really wise, uh, to just end there. There's a critical measure of confidence and certainty within the biblical concept of hope. So, for example, whenever you're studying Paul, just a little kind of sidebar here, whenever you're studying Paul, who wrote Romans, you have to be kind of a student in grammar. I'm I'm a bit of a grammar geek. I love grammar. Um, But I don't know what a gerund is, by the way. I like grammar, don't know gerunds. Just FYI. Uh, There's these impossibly long sentences if you read Paul's letters. Really... Lots and lots of elaborate prepositional phrases. I know my wife's an English teacher. She's like, I wish he'd just put a punctuation mark there. Would have made a lot more sense, right? And unless you just look carefully, especially in Greek, at what modifies what, you have no idea what he's saying. Like, ooh, could I get a vowel? You know, you're just a little stuck. So you have to be kind of be a grammar detective. And when you do, you see some remarkable things. So let's take Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what they've already seen? If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Okay, there's the content of hope. Let's unpack it. Number one, in Greek, hope is put at the beginning of the statement there. In this hope, we were saved. And that makes it in Greek, emphatic. It is the point of the sentence. Some translations go as far to say, we were saved by hope. That's amazing. Uh, and, and like I said, I thought I was saved by Jesus, and it's unlikely Paul is actually saying that hope saves you. Because if you look at the rest of his letters, no, the saving work of Christ on the cross, that's what saves us, okay? Saved by faith, saved by grace, um, something God does. Thus, it would make more sense for us to say we were saved for hope, which you can do in Greek, by and for the same word, which is something the Greek allows, okay? So we're saved by, for hope, into hope, or I I would just put it in saved to live in a condition of hope, okay? So something's been done already, death of Christ, birth of Christ, and that produces hope, okay? It's an outcome. So hope's not some, like, wishful thinking, I hope this happens. Instead, it's a sense that something happened, and that produces something in me, hope. Make sense? Here's the second thing, the most important. The word saved here in verse 24 of Romans 8, it's what's known, write this down, you're going to want this later, in Greek, as an aorist passive indicative. You're loving this, right? All the seminary students there. Woo! It means that something was done, and yet that, re- that something remains incomplete. It's not finished, okay? So it's ongoing. So it, what's been done? We've been saved, okay? Yet, here's, here's the tricky thing our salvation isn't complete, it's, it's still happening. I read somewhere that we remain, basically based on Romans 8 here, we remain only half saved. The death of Jesus—you don't just pray some prayer, done, right? Death of Jesus completed salvation, but we're not—it's not done yet. And this is where uh, I think Isaiah 42 comes into play. We'll get to that in a sense, a second. But it's—it's it's so important for us when we come to this idea of hope. Okay, like Romans or Hebrews 11 says, we put confidence—confidence confidence is in our faith. Our faith is confidence, assurance in what we don't see. We have confidence that Jesus died on the cross. We have confidence He rose in the dead. And yet I don't see it all. It's not done yet. Does that make sense to you? So Isaiah 42, what the Fort read. It's this vision. In all the Isaiah passages, you could have picked any one of those. uh, From Isaiah 40, we'll read that next week. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9. I mean, look at these in Advent. They're always a vision of God's justice and freedom and liberation and renewal uh, that was brought into the world in Christ, Prophetically, Isaiah sees that and then continues to be brought into the world in Christ. And yet, we all know, living today, it's just a vision that's held out in front of us. It's not done yet. We know that "Mm, this world ain't that world, right? Uh, And so that's part of what we need to remember. But listen to this. This is a part of the vision we didn't read that I think is really important for us. Uh, It's Isaiah 42, verses 10 to 13. Let me read these. Uh, it says this: Sing to the Lord a new song; His praise from the end of the earth. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its towns be lifted up, the villages that Kidar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Seelos sing for joy. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise to the coastlands. Here's the important part: The Lord goes forth like a soldier. Like a warrior, he stirs up his fury. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Now, why is that important? What Isaiah is offering here, and especially as you think about hope, is he's offering a, a vision of God's ultimate triumph. Ultimate triumph. Uh, it's, it's, it's so important because, see, Christ's victory in our lives and our world, it's though complete on the cross, it's still on the horizon. It's still not, we're not there yet. The theologians say we're, we're living in the middle Already not yet, okay? He's going to, he will march out, as Isaiah 42 says, like a champion. Hasn't marched out yet. So we understand, we taste glimpses of freedom over things like addiction, boredom, anger, cynicism, fear, physical sickness, broken relationships, violence. We see a lot of violence right now. We, we've experienced glimpses of, of victory over those things, but all of us who've lived past infancy, which is most of us here, we know that this is an incomplete victory. We've just tasted it, right? Christ's full and final victory is yet to come, okay? And so uh, there's this old hymn by this great hymn writer, Ralph Vaughan Williams. He wrote this hymn that we, we sing in the Presbyterian Church, uh, For All the Saints. Anybody know this, this hymn? Some of you know this song. You probably wish we sang it. Andrew, there's a, where are you? For All the Saints. There you go. There's a stanza in the hymn, that's, that's uh, got this vivid image. It goes like this. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, then hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Okay? So it's a really interesting metaphor when you think about what's happening in Isaiah 42 when you think about this concept of hope. Uh, in other words, imagine yourself, because see this, this stanza that Williams wrote, you're, you're fighting in a battle and your side's losing. He wrote this hymn during World War I. Trench warfare. European, you're losing, you're going you're gonna to die, okay? And the battlefield, I mean, if you've ever seen, like, uh, all quiet on the Western Front, you were forced to watch that in civics, like, just blood all over the battlefield, and, and just horrendous. So you're fighting for your life, people are falling all around you, your numbers are dwindling, and you're about to be overrun, okay? You're, you're going to just die. And then you hear something, you hear something. And here's what you hear, you hear this music, or you hear the song of a marching army, and you hear the, the, the footsteps in the ground. You can feel the ground kind of trembling, right? And, and they're not there. The battle still goes on. They're not there, but guess what happens to you? You don't see them. You can, you can hear them a little bit. You can feel them. In other words, even though they're not part of the battle yet, you're still engaged in the battle. Your, your arm is already stronger, right? Uh, your heart is braver. Your anticipation of what's going to happen, though it hasn't happened, changes you changes your attitude, changes the way in which you are now, okay? You're you're connecting, listen to this, you're connecting to your future. That's hope. And and so to connect to your believed-in future, your promised future, the future that we've been caught up in, in the life of Christ, to believe, put your faith in that, that determines how we process and respond to circumstances now, let me say it again. To believe in, in your future, to put your faith in that, determines how you process circumstances now. So you're in the midst of a marriage that's, where, where intimacy is just dying. You're, you're looking at your checkbook, and it's not balanced. You're watching the political landscape right now, and you're like, man, how can this be going on? To believe in the future that you, To believe in the future that God promises, justice, righteousness, intimacy, healing, that determines how you process those circumstances now, okay? And we underestimate, most of us, I do, how, our, how much our believed-in future determines how we live now. We, we've made peace with cynicism. We've made peace with depression. We've made peace with uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know if I can believe in this stuff anymore. Uh, we've, we've made peace with all those things, but we are irreducibly hope-based creatures, we have to have something to hope in, or we won't live. There's this great uh, study from Harvard Medical School that I read, 2014. real basic. I've showed this before, but they studied patients and their kind of well-being. These are chronically ill patients. They're in hospitals, based on their interactions with their doctors and their medical professionals. And this is, I know there's some medical professionals in here. I love you all. So patients all sick, where the doctor or the nurse or physician's assistant walks in and says, "You look." better today. Always started to get better. They may not have completely gotten healed and they may have ultimately the diagnosis, if it's cancer, whatever it is, they may have died, but there was a spike in their well-being. Whereas, you know, let's just say the pastor, because I know doctors never do this. I did this the other day. You walk in, you're like, man, how are you feeling? You're looking a little pale. This is key. Those patients always got worse. Is it, do you see this? Our, our, our ability to believe in the future, to put our faith in the future, determines how we respond to circumstances now. We are, re, we are hope-based creatures. We need to hope in order to live. It's the only way, uh, what we believe with the future is the only way for us to process, experience, and handle circumstances now. It's the only way we're going to be able to face difficult circumstances that we're in the midst of. And it's not about superficial hope. It's not about the hawks winning today. It's not about, um, you know, this ethereal sunny weather. I hope life just gets better someday. It's about putting our faith in something eternal and true. This vision of Christ defeating death, which leads to the second question, okay? That's the content of hope. How do we activate it? Because that's great. Pie in the skies. It's a vision, okay? Beautiful vision. But how does that become real in my day-to-day, okay? I want to go there a little bit today. I'm glad you asked that question. So. We're going to look at three real quick, okay? And Romans 8 offers these. This is why I love Romans 8. It's just so good in terms of how to apply things into your life. Three things. The first is learn to groan inwardly, okay? Here's Romans 8, 23. Not only so, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Okay, We're going to, we're going to get to wait eagerly, but we first we start with groaning inwardly. And this is an amazing moment because it's this acknowledgment that hope can be found in, listen to this, in suffering. Hope can be found in the midst of pain. It's not getting past it; in it. Uh, the word "groaning" it's a very, very strong Greek word. It means an expression of pain. It goes beyond that. It's actually a Greek word that, in, if you read Greek literature, extra-biblical literature, it's the expression of someone who's facing death. Now, it can be. It's a death pain. Now, lo- notice in verse 23, it's associated with a woman giving birth in child or childbirth. Uh, so it, it has that, but you have to remember in the ancient Near East, ancient times, crying out, screaming during birth was not just an expression of pain, though I know, I know childbirth is painful, although I've said this before, I only know a little. So, but this, this is an um, expression of mortal danger. When women would groan in those ancient times, it was an expression of, I'm, I'm in danger right now of dying. That's the groaning. In fact, to our surprise, Paul then correlates that to the groans of creation. We groan in, in pains of childbirth. The creation is groaning. Our material world is groaning. So it's not just us. I mean, we groan, but our, our environment, and he wrote this in the first century, our environment is groaning right now. I mean, it's like he just looked ahead to the 21st and went, wow, uh, good luck. I mean, it's, it's, it's being crushed. It's under bondage. It's in decay. It's in frustration. And so what you know what this means? means that everything, not just suffering, but the world, is steadily, irreversibly, inexorably falling apart. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. It's, that's what it is. <laughs> we are in the midst of groaning. I mean, I know climate change is a thing we might try and reverse, but this, this is just a truth. We're in the midst of groaning, so what's the point? <laughs> I mean, this is not a hopeful message, but it is. Here's the deal. We live in a, see, we live in a culture where suffering culturally is an anomaly, uh, we tend to think that if you know, like, if we're savvy, if things are working right, we shouldn't suffer, right? Um, and when we do suffer, we get angry about it. We get angry at God. We get angry at uh, like life. We get angry at somebody. Somebody's mistreating me if I'm suffering, right? We try and put all kinds of makeup on it. We try and put all kinds of bandages around it. And, and this text is telling us, listen... In all kinds of ways, you can try and avoid suffering in your 30s, a lot of you are in your 30s, in your 40s, in your, maybe into your 50s if you're lucky. But someday, you're going to suffer. It's unavoidable. You cannot avoid suffering. It's part of the world. Real bad, horrendous groaning is inevitable, which is a warning, but it's also a word of consolation. Here's why. we, In the midst of groaning, we can find hope. If you skip down to verse 26, I'm not going to say too much about it because... It's the subject of next week's sermon, so come back. But it says this in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit... I know there's a 10 a.m. Seahawks game next week, so it's okay. So I'll say a little bit about it. But you won't find hope in it. There you go. In the same way... Here's verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. But we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes through us through wordless groans. There's that word again. Same exact word. We groan, we live in this painful tension, so does the Spirit of God. It's a word of consolation. We don't know how to pray, we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit does, and the Spirit does it by groaning. What's that about? Why is the Spirit groaning? I mean, it's such an important moment, because if, if you go over to Mark 7, I, I'll just tell you about it, you don't have to go there. It's this really, really amazing story of Jesus, healing this deaf and mute man who'd been deaf and mute for his whole life. And uh, he suffered you could say he's groaned, and Jesus takes him aside. He's about to heal this guy, and he does this really bizarre thing, he puts his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spits on his hand, and he touches the man's tongue. Really bizarre. And then in verse 34 of Mark 7, Jesus says this. He looks up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, says, Ephatha, which means be opened. And the key is that when he looked to heaven and sighed, it's the same word from Romans 8, he groaned. Jesus groaned. Which is at least has two at least two amazing implications. At least as I thought about it this week, the first is is when he is because here's a man is Jesus who's so vulnerable, so loving that he can emotionally identify with a a suffering person. He's not above all that. He's not like, hey, you know, you're suffering because you didn't go to church enough. You're suffering because you didn't, you know, you know you need to you need to kind of go to the doctor every year. You know, you know that. Why didn't you? (laughs) <laughs> it's your fault. He never said that. He, he groans. He feels the man's suffering in his own body. Hebrews 4 talks about that. Here's the second and most important thing. The ultimate reason Jesus, Jesus groans is he knows that in order to deliver this man from his bondage, in order to deliver us, you could say, from our bondage of sin, death, and the devil, he himself is going to be plunged into a suffering and a groaning like none other. Listen to this. Remember that place on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? That's a quote from Psalm 22. We all know the 23rd Psalm, Lord is my shepherd, but do you know the 22nd Psalm? Verse 1. Here's what it says. If you look at that verse, here's the whole verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? In another translation, here's, here's what it says. Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? See, Jesus on the cross, he groaned. And in his groaning, I think he offers us hope, which is assurance that uh, the work of salvation has begun there. He's not some defeated criminal, some anonymous rabbi in the ancient Near East who nobody knows about. He's the Savior. Yeah, born in a manger, raised to glory. Um, And that has tremendous implications for our life because if you're facing death, if you're dealing with a chronic illness, You're just getting old and, like, you break a bone like I did and it's taking a lot longer to get well. And you're saying, my body must just be falling apart. I can't do what I used to do. Uh, You're feeling chronic pain in your relationships. If, Like I said, intimacy is just absent in your marriage. Your kids are in total rebellion. Like, if your future seems dark, work just seems, like, meaningless. If you've lost hope in any way, shape, or form, you can groan inwardly, trusting that the groans of your life were the groans of Christ's life. He groaned. He shared. He expressed those on the cross, even now, before the throne of God. He's there. He makes intercession for you. He's on your behalf. He's groaning. I just believe he's groaning before the Father. God, I died for them. Would you heal them? He's doing that for you. Uh, That's your first resource, just this ability to live in this painful tension, not get past it, live within it and find hope in it, okay? Here's the second one. Learn to wait eagerly. So here's verse 23 of Romans 8 again. Not only so, but we ourselves who, are, who are the, have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. There's kind of this pendulum swing there and this dynamic tension between learning to process our grief before the cross and live inside of it and then living with a joyful expectancy, okay? So hope involves, listen, learning to live in the, with this sense of longing, looking forward, anticipation, Right? of what's to come, like I talked about in Isaiah 42. And this image of pregnancy and childbirth is, again, really vital for us to wrap our heads around for kind of understanding how this looks. So every pregnant mother, any woman in this room, who's, who's had a child knows what it's like to groan inwardly in the pains of childbirth. You know the third trimester. You know what it's like to bear another life. You bear the weight of that life. It's just, you put energy towards sustaining it. Uh, and that's saying nothing of giving birth, right? You just know what this is about. It's not easy. Uh, But, listen, no pregnant mother, no good father in this room, for that matter, has ever just sat by idly while that baby's growing. Never. Maybe a few, but you don't just focus on that pain. I mean, you, 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 there's always anticipation of the life to come, which involves a certain degree of preparation. Like, I remember this in my own life with Elizabeth, with our two kids. We'd put the car seat in the car, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, you know, I Practice. And then you uh, you pack the overnight bag, you assemble the crib, you attend birthing classes, you cook the meal, you put it in the freezer. You know, there's this eager waiting. It was so rich, and then a week, we're a week overdue. We're two weeks overdue. Both our kids, for whatever reason, we're two weeks overdue. What's going on there? But still, you know, it, it's becoming less joyful. But we still have joy. We're still prepared. We went to the doctor. We went on walks. We took all kinds of things to get that thing started. We read more books. Lots of preparation. We looked at more names. Did all that? How many of you guys did that? You know what I'm talking about. It's it's true of childbirth. It's true as you prepare to parent. It's true of marriage. I mean, I say this to all the couples. There's a few of you here that I've done premarital counseling with. I, I say this: don't let your wedding hijack your marriage. Don't let that happen, because a wedding is a great day, but it takes a marriage takes a lot of preparation. It's not just three sessions with me that's going to make for a happy life. You know, you need to go to counseling before the before the trauma hits, right? Uh, Get in a couples group, uh, practices, work, care, and it's true of our spiritual lives as well. I mean, hope is found as we develop practices, we just had a sermon series about this, where we anticipate God's work in our lives. We anticipate healing by leaning into prayer, right? We anticipate reconciliation in relationships by leaning into community. We don't wait for reconciliation to happen before we start building relationships. We don't do that. We anticipate renewal by leaning into sacrificial service. Uh, We anticipate God's provision by leaning into generosity. Is this making sense? So the exhortation into hope is that we learn to wait expectantly. That's what we do. We wait expectantly. We we don't just wait like the bus to come. (laughs) That's not hope. It's wait expectantly. I know the bus is going to come. I'm going to do some jumping jacks while the bus is coming. You make sense? Maybe, maybe that would be weird to do, so don't do that. Here's the final thing, okay? I'll go through this one quickly, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. So we groan inwardly, wait expectantly, and then we rest patiently, okay? So listen to this verse again. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? If we hope for what we don't have, we wait for it patiently. So as the psalmist declares in Psalm 130, verse 6, I wait for the morning. I wait for the Lord, I'm sorry. My soul's watching for him. My hope is in his word. My soul's watching for the Lord more than those who are watching for the morning. Yes, more than the watchers for the morning. I wait for I wait for God. So when you watch for the morning, if you've ever done this, you've gone on a hike, or you've gotten up early and gone on the beach, you wait for it. It feels like it takes forever, right? Just, oh my gosh, when's the sun gonna rise? I'm kind of nodding off right now. I need coffee. Like It may seem to take forever, but here's the key. It always comes, unless the sun, for some reason, decided not to rise, I guess. But it always comes around the earth, and it always rises. Uh, There's this Advent devotional that I read every year by Henry Nouwen. Go go figure. (laughs) It's called In Joyful Hope, and uh, it just was pulled out again, and I was like, wow, that's our theme this year. And the reading for tomorrow is a question. How do we wait for God? And here's his answer. We wait with patience. But patience, he says, does not mean passivity. Waiting passively is like waiting for the bus to come or the rain to stop. We wait patiently. It's an active waiting in which we live the present moment to the full in order to find that there are signs of the one for whom we're waiting for. And he goes on to say the word patience comes from the Latin verb Patior, which means to suffer. Waiting patiently is suffering through the present moment, as I've already said. Tasting it to the full and letting the seeds that are sown in the ground on which we stand grow into strong plants. Waiting patiently always means paying attention to what's happening right before your eyes and seeing there the first rays of God's glorious coming right before your eyes. Wait for the Lord. And why this is so important is simply this. Eager waiting ultimately demands our response. Waiting patiently is all about response. Jesus tells this fascinating story that I'll close with that only shows up in Luke chapter 12. And it's a parable. He says, Be dressed and ready for a journey with your lights burning like men and women who are looking for their Lord when He comes back from the bride feast so that when He comes to the door, and knocks. it will be open quickly. Happy are those who are watching when the Lord comes. Truly I say to you, he will make himself their servant. That's a beautiful image. Place them at the table and he'll come out and give them food. He'll be their servant. Now most scholars are going to tell you that this parable is about the second coming of Christ and I'll give you that. It's all good. Uh, But I really believe if you boil it down, it's actually about the presence of hope in our lives and and specifically hope's capacity to transform us, to move us toward response. So do you know why it's so important to learn to cultivate hope in your life? It's always God's desire that you're ready to respond. Did you hear that from Jesus? Be like those who are dressed and ready for a journey. Uh, With your light burning, (laughs) the world's dark and you're going to need light. Be like men and women who are at the door. Just waiting for the Lord. When he comes back, you open it and he's going to serve you. I mean, that's what Jesus wants in our lives. Be ready to respond to his presence. What does he say elsewhere? You know, he's being led into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's being mocked by all the religious leaders, just mocking him for doing that. And he said, they're saying, the people are saying, Hosanna. And the, and the religious leaders are saying, shut them up, quiet the people down. And you know what Jesus says? If they're quiet, guess what? The rocks are going to cry out. I demand a response when I walk in to your life, when I enter your life. Faith is learning to respond to God's revelation. And thus it is with hope. Um, Martin Luther King once said this, you know, he, just before he's assassinated, he, does this, he gives this famous message, sermon, A bend to the mountaintop, get the vision of his own death. I, I can't remember if it was like the day before, but it was right before, he's in Memphis. And he said this, if I was standing, this is a quote, if I was standing at the beginning of time, the possibility of taking a a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history. And the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King Jr., which age would you want to live in? And then he goes through all the ages of history, all the epochs of history. Do you know which age he chose when he gave that sermon of all the great epochs in history to live in? Here's what he said. Strangely enough, I'd turn to the Almighty and I'd say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century... 1963. I'd be happy. Now, he says, that's a strange statement to make because the world's messed up, the nation's sick, troubles in the land, confusion's all around. It's a strange statement, but I know somehow that only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. And he goes on, he says, I see God working in this period in the 20th century in in the way that men and women in some strange way are what? Responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And whenever they assemble today, whether it's in Johannesburg, Nairobi, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Seattle, wherever you you put it in, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. That's a a declaration of response. Learning to rest patiently has to do with our capacity to respond to God's revelation. God wants more than anything for you to, to be at the door ready for him when he shows up. Resting patiently at the door (laughs) to jump up like the prophet Isaiah did at one point in his life when God says, who's going to go for us? Whom should I send? Here am I. Send me. That's why he can write Isaiah 42 and declare hope to us because he knows he's resting in the belief that God is who God says God is and God will do what God says God's going to do. He believes that and he's at the door. So here's the question I want to finish with. What's God showing you in your life? What's he revealing to you? It could be in the word. It could be in a relationship. It could be She you just walk down the street. Are you letting that vision fill you with an eagerness to respond? God, I want to be in your story. I want to participate in your redemption of the world. I want to, I'm at the door. This Advent, I don't just want it to be about Christmas presents under the tree and concerts. That's all good. I want to be active in hope, living today as you called me to live. That's what it means to have hope breakthrough. You know, earlier this week, I was thinking about how I'd like end this sermon and I was kind of hoping for, you know, I was watching a movie the, with my kids and I found myself hoping for a good story, like a good hope story with like a neat and tidy ending, you know, where there was groaning and then expectancy and then patience and then resolution. And then I thought of my life and I couldn't think of a single one. I know, depressing. One single happy ending I thought of my life, and I thought of these stories they are just full of ellipses, like living stories, unfinished stories with question marks, ending the sentences. What's going to happen there, God? How is that relationship going to come together again, you know? How, where's this church going? My faith, ah, oh, I don't understand all these things, God. Where's the hope in that? Here's the hope. This is the J.B. Phillips translation of that Romans 8 passage I keep reading. I'm just going to read one more time. We were saved by this hope. But in our moments of impatience, let us remember that hope always means waiting for something that we haven't yet got. If we hope for something we cannot see, we must settle down and wait for it with patience. Advent's all about just settling down and just waiting and saying, God, do what you promised. Do it today. So to that end, let's... uh, Let's come to the table. Let me just pray for us before we respond. God, thank you that Advent is about more than we actually expect. That it's about a big vision of your inbreaking into our world in the midst of real darkness, God, real and present darkness. That it's about the inbreaking of your presence into our lives, God, where there is brokenness where there's anguish, where there's real groaning. God, thank you that Jesus chose to come in this way he did, in a vulnerable, intimate, relatable way, um, so that he could live the life he lived and then go to the cross and die. Hel- help us to see that vision, God, today as we take this, this meal together. Thank you that we get to do it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.